The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. It's uh, kind of an emotional time for me to look out and see you for a couple of reasons. I was on the uh, commission for uh, actually forming this church and uh, preached here, but not here, back where we started. And to see the way the church has grown, and uh, it just means a lot to me to be here. Uh, the second reason it means a lot to me is because as I look at you, I see a lot of people that have gray hair like I do. You look like me. I like that. I really want to go back, my wife says, and live in the 50s. But anyway, uh, and I would like to uh, give you uh, greetings from First Pres and Macon. We are so thankful for this church and what's been done here in Lake Oconee. My wife here, who gets six weekends a year off as director of women's ministries at First Pres, chose this weekend to come with me. Now, when you have grandchildren, some of you don't, but you that do understand six weekends a month, guess what they're dedicated to? Grandchildren. So uh, I'm glad to have her here, and she truly is the wind beneath my wings and the greatest thing that's ever happened to me since, except what the Lord's done for me. I'd like to turn to John 17 and uh, introduce to you the greatest prayer in the Bible. Our Lord's high priestly prayer, which was prayed the evening before his sacrifice for us. The high priestly prayer has said, it's said of it by some commentators that it's the most remarkable prayer following the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on earth. It's a prayer uttered by the Savior for that precious band of men that he called out to be his people and to transform the world. It's a prayer of passion, a prayer of petition. It's a prayer of great love and affection. A commentator of old, Bishop Ryle, said, The chapter we have now begun is the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone. And there's nothing like it. We've been going through this prayer in our Sunday school class. And uh, I chose one of the messages that has to do with holiness because that's the burden on my heart for our church, our PCA churches, along with the church in general. Just by way of outline, the Savior begins the prayer by praying for himself. In John 17, 1 through 5, he is the faithful son He asks the Father to glorify your Son so that he can in turn glorify the Father. He's given eternal life to these men before him and to all who he would call to himself. He tells the Father that he's completed the assignment that he gave him to do. He has revealed the Father to these men as they sit around and he's looking at them. And he loves them so much. 
He's given the Father's words to them in John 18, John verse 8 and 14. He's prayed for them. He tells us in verses 9 through 10. He's kept them safe, except for Judas. He's set himself apart and will on the morrow for their sanctification. We'll deal with that in just a moment. He sent them into the world, not to be of the world, but to transform the world. And then he requests some things of his disciples, which he requests even now, seated at the right hand of God the Father as he makes intercession for us, for you sitting right there. What do you think he prays of the Father for you? Well, John 17. Here's an outline of some of the things that he requests and is requesting for you. Father, unify them, verse 11. Father, impart joy to them, verse 13. He wants us to be joyful. Father, protect them, keep them from the evil assaults of the prince of this world and from the, the world of flesh and the devil, in verses 15 through 18. That's the subject for today, holiness. Father, set them apart, particularly in verse 17, our theme verse. That's what's on his heart for you. That's why he died for you and me. That's the passion of his heart. He asked that the Father would unify the church now as he prays for the church and looks down through the centuries, including our church. He asked that the church would honor the Son with their lives. And he asked that the church would display God's love, verse 23. He asked that the church would experience God's love in its fullness, verses 25 through 26. And he asked that the church would enjoy Christ's glory in heaven forever. In essence, God the Savior, the Son, as he prays this high priestly prayer, has you in mind as well as the disciples and me in mind. And he is excited about what he's going to accomplish and has accomplished on our behalf. That we could walk this earth and reflect his godly character and enjoy our relationship with him and bring many souls to glory. And that, to him, was worth it all. And so, we take a look at the uh, prayer. Look at verse 17. Well, let's back up to 14. Uh, 13. But now I come to you. These things, and, and, and keep in mind, these disciples are just overhearing him as he looks up and prays to the Father. But now I come to you, these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. God wants us to be joyful Christians filled with a sense of well-being because of our relationship with him. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And here's our theme verse. Set them apart, literally. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I set myself apart. 
Of course, he's thinking about what he would accomplish on Calvary. That they themselves also may be sanctified in what? Verse 19, the truth. We'll deal with that in a minute. I do not ask on behalf, I love this verse in verse 20, of those alone. But who? For who? You and me. Those who believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, even as you are, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. <clears throat> the word sanctify carries with it the idea, it's from the Greek word hagias, which you Bible scholars all well know. And it has it's taken out of the koine or common Greek which they use to set something apart for a particular use. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writers of Scripture brought this uh, term in. And our catechism describes the term sanctification or to be set apart as this. It's the work of God's free, free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Okay, I just read that, but think about it as I read it. Think of the, of the, of the um, description that God has for us as his believers. We are renewed in the whole man, a complete house cleaning, a renovation of a person. After what? The characteristics of God. The glory of God, the theologians tell us, are the sum of his attributes. And that is what he wants to reproduce in us, in our character. So that once as he created us to do that, and it was broken by sin, and the prince of the power of the air is viciously attacking that and, and rules this world, and this world does anything but reflect that, he wants to reproduce a people that will accurately reflect to a watching world what he's like and will be stewards the way he would be a steward over this world. It also involves more and more dying to sin and living unto righteousness. And so he calls you and me saints. We don't have to have a church stamp saints to approve us. He does. The saints are literally the called out ones who make up God's church. All Christians are saints, set-apart ones. Jude 1 tells us, sanctified, set-apart by God the Father. And this is in reference to his eternal predestination of the elect when God set them apart from our doomed race. That's what you are today if you have embraced Christ and you are walking with him. How does that happen? Hebrews 10.10 10 tells us, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 2 Thessalonians says the agent of our sanctification is the Holy Spirit. He's at work within your heart even now, setting you apart more and more, convicting you and me of sin, encouraging us and giving us a heart to grow and be like Christ and leading us on, encouraging us when we fall and picking us up again and empowering us and changing our wants, as one kid said, changing my water 
into the desires uh, to follow him. Well, how does it happen? Well, that brings us to our theme verse. Quite an introduction, huh? I promise you, that's probably about half the sermon. Okay, so hang in there with me. Um, Verse 17 of chapter 17. Sanctify them. How? In the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19. That they themselves also may be sanctified in what? The truth. The truth is the written word given by God through organs of revelation that he has set apart. And so it cannot lie. There is no error. The word of God is the final authority and we sit under it and we are, we are filled with it. By everything it is tested, but by it our thoughts are to be formed and our conduct is evaluated and regulated. Our catechism again says this of God's truth, the agent of our sanctification. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? That's a profound question. How do we do this? The Word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Truth is priceless. It's more valuable than Morgan Gold that we hear about every time we open, turn on the TV. It's more valuable than diamonds. It's how we change under the power of the Holy Spirit God's truth. Well, the question comes up, if believers are already sanctified and set apart by the new birth when Christ forms himself into us, convicts us of sin and calls us to himself and we respond, why does Christ pray for our sanctification as he does here in verse 17 and for the disciples? Well, the answer is though that although we have been set apart to God, we often fall, we often fail to live up to that calling. We still have a body of sin and we must be transformed. We must be changed. We must deal with the issues in our life that are impeding us in our Christian growth. And we certainly find this individually and we certainly find this in the church. The world's values often remain and shape the way we look at this world. Uh, One of the benefits of reading church history, which I like to do in the old Puritans, is to see at times in the church when there was a passion, a passion, I'm using this because the young people use this term all the time, I'm trying to uh, act younger. In fact, I told my daughter, who's 32, I said, cool, that's cool. She said, dad, don't. It (laughs) It just doesn't come over well. So I'm going to use the word passion. You know, daughters tell you more than sons do, don't they? I mean, they'll tell you anything. Um, but uh, there used to be, and there is at times in the history of the church, a passion for holiness. I believe in the 21st century church, in many ways we've lost that passion in the pursuit of what Francis Schaeffer said is a wrinkle-free life. Isn't that an interesting, interesting term? We pursue comfort and we do it through prosperity, prestige, and other things so that we can affect 
a wrinkle-free life and go out happy. In our day, and I believe with Schaefer and Boyce and some of the other commentators, that's the modern idolatry. Over the years, when I do premarital counseling and uh, still do some, I'm retired, but I, um, I'm not. I'm still in the process of being retreaded. So I still love to love to come and preach and teach. I uh, teach the older elder Sunday school class um, in our church, and I told some of the guys here. I said when I joined that class, I lowered two things: the average age and the net worth. But they put up with me, and uh, and I have found that that's one of the great inhibitors of holiness as we get older. Is this this grasping for security and a wrinkle-free life that takes us on into into heaven, and it can actually become idolatry. I see that with younger people as they begin to build their their businesses and their families and how do I pay for this and how do I get this house which is um, humongous and how much can I borrow how much can I, and all this stuff and the burden of my heart and the burden of this message today is I believe that we have in many ways embraced the values of this world and bring them into the church and try to sanctify them and it becomes a great inhibitor of holiness and I think one of the uh, problems um, of that is uh, we are not reading the Word, which is going to be the solution to this in just a minute, like we ought to read it. Because we bring firmly set priorities that are the same as this world into our Christian life. Listen to me now. This is so important. We read the Scriptures like we would read a novel rather than read the scriptures like we would read a road map. When I read a novel, Marianne and I are both readers. We read everything we can, and uh, uh, we love it. When I read a novel, uh, particularly if you're at the beach and you don't want the mind to really you know, deal with deep issues, you, I read um, Clive Kussler. Anybody read him? And some of the other stuff like that. Uh, I can get the plot. I don't have to get it all. I get the gist of it. And the older I get, the more I forget. Well, this character, who, what did he do? Who is he? You know, and things like that. But it doesn't really matter. The main thing is that I just enjoyed the book, right? I'm not trying to take from the book anything to transform my life. A lot of us bring that same attitude as we read the scriptures. And we want, well, I read that. It didn't do that for me. I mean, it's not transforming my life. I'm trying, but... Maybe it's just not for me. We already knew how to get here, but if we hadn't known how to get here, she, my navigator, I talk, she navigates, um, would have poured over the map, and where it said turn, we'd have what? Turned. Where it said, you know, we would have followed the map meticulously. See my point? I think in many ways we read scriptures like a novel instead of a roadmap to get where God wants us to go. Because there's a cost to reading the scriptures that way. It's called change. 
facing things in our life may not be gross big sins, but wrong values that can eat away like termites at the foundation of our Christian life, and we don't want to give them up because they've worked for a while and we're comfortable with them, and they're sinful because they're idolatry. And uh, so we want to um, we want to deal with some of that. Well, the last third of the sermon is really this, and you see it in your outline. And I got this from uh, Boyce, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, his particular commentary on this, but I really like it. It nails down, particularly for a church, some admonitions on how the church of today has changed. Um, The first thing is uh, the impact of the world upon the church in these various areas The first area is the world's wisdom. If we're not careful and we don't realize what's happening, we will allow the world's wisdom to begin to shape how we as a church run the church and run our lives. The spirit of our age sits over the scriptures and judges them, as we talked about with reading like a novel. The spirit of the age sits over the scriptures, and I'm quoting Boyce, and judges them rather than under the scriptures and lets the scriptures judge us. I want to pause here for just a minute because as I'm preaching, I'm just thinking, I believe the Spirit of God is saying, is that you? Has that happened to you recently? Let the Spirit of God begin to take his word and face some of this stuff. The result has been to set aside the scriptures for other sources of wisdom with the result that the authoritative and reforming voice of God through the scriptures is ignored. And of course, we can see through public discourse, for those that don't really value the scriptures at all, how they scoff at what we hold dear. We've seen that in some of the debates recently. In a world, in a, in a word, what we're talking about is the big word secularism in the area of the church's wisdom. And another authority, human authority, begins to replace God's word. The church becomes irrelevant in the life and age of faith because... We are not living it out as we should. You know, the Christians in this church and the Christians in our church should have an impact in contrast to the lifestyle of this world. But instead, we've embraced so many of the same values. Boyce says this, the church becomes irrelevant to life when this happens. Ages of faith, listen to this, are not marked by, quote, dialogue but by proclamation. Revival is marked by the appearance of people with firm, unapologetic, uncompromising, compromising convictions. I want to read that again. Revival is marked by the appearance of people with firm, unapologetic, uncompromising convictions. It is not marked by dialogue. It's marked by proclamation of truth. I think in our desire to get along with everybody, we've lost the punch that our lives should have 
on this world as we proclaim the truths in this world. And we could give many examples of that. The problem is that we have weakened the foundations of the church. As Francis Schaeffer said, I don't, uh, he said that we, because we've embraced the values of this world, and he describes them in two ways personal peace and affluence. And we've reworded it in such a way that how can you find a, uh, how can you find an argument against it? I love this. Personal peace. I don't, quote, I don't really care much what is happening in the world so long as it doesn't affect or bother me. Um, Second, affluence. Not necessarily to be the wealthiest person in the room, but simply to have enough money to enjoy life to the full. What if God calls you not to do that? Then you come face to face with the the idols of your life. And uh, do you give them up or what? Uh, One preacher said this, and I copied it down as an example. He said this, a comfortable home, happily married, successful children, and as we get older, grandchildren. And he said this, and I quote, if that is your desire above... um, being people of God, your children being people of God, obedient to his will, and doing without those things, and suffering at risk to do his work, if that's not what you want for your children above safety and happiness, then you have caved in to the values of this world. Wow, that's a convictor. Because we're touching our children, and more importantly, our grandchildren, right? That's a tough one. And so that's the first thing in your outline. The second thing is that the world's theology. We follow the fads of this world so often, even in the church. One Christian school conference, one of the Christian school leaders commented this, and I quote, We have a case of the world leading the church rather than the church leading the world. We become secularized in that we so easily follow the facts and the, and the uh, philosophy of the world. We see it in some areas. We see it in theology. Uh, we're even seeing it in the PCA and some, some, some theology that's entering in in some of the larger churches and in some of the, I saw it as the clerk of the session in some of the courts of the church that greatly concerns some of us at First Pres. There's a greater emphasis in theology upon, for example, psychological analysis, small group dynamics, interaction groups. And I'm not against small groups at all. Small groups should be meeting and, and ministering to one another and, and, and reading the Word. But one of the first things I see among my preacher's friends is, well, get them to counseling. Well, what's wrong with getting them to godly people who will take the word and love them and work through the truths of Scripture, too, with them? First thing is get them on, get them on a, a drug. Get them, get, them, get them help with counseling. Well, God has called us in the church to bring counseling and help to one another and to know the word and the elders to be able to do that. We've embraced so much of the system of the world. 
the liturgy that we're finding in worship. I mean, some of our PCA churches are just this side, as one friend of mine said, uh, just this side of whoopee, just to get to fill the pews. Instead of the great, now, I know this is my gray hair talking, and my wife reminds me of this. She's nodding right now. Instead of the great old hymns of the faith, like I've seen this worship service today. I love it. And wow, that pianist, she is good. And where she is. Uh, we're trying to appeal to the wrong things in this world. Uh, the idea of universalism. You would be surprised over the years of my pastorate how often I heard from church members that had gone through our new members class and the whole works. I have heard them say, um, well, you know, man, I just think God's got a plan for everybody, even if they don't come to Christ, because God wouldn't, you know, on and on and on. It's some of the stuff that comes out is so unbiblical. Um, and not to mention um, marriages, the divorce rate in the churches is about similar to the world. We have embraced the values of this world. Moving on quickly, third, the world's agenda. Secularism has produced indifference to the concerns that are on the heart of the Savior, i.e. holiness, personal holiness, holiness in the local church, and addressing the hard issues and being willing to stand up and say what you believe when everybody else is raising the eyebrow and either yawning in indifference or, or being shocked at what you say. The indifference to the needs that I see in the church to fellow believers. Rarely in a conversation do you hear a question from somebody about, for, from, for another person and what they're doing and what their life is. Mostly what you hear, what I hear, is here is who I am, here's why I'm significant, let me tell you about my family, and let me tell you about what I believe. The selfishness that we see in the church is anything but uh, a reflection of holiness and the indifference in the church. And then finally, the world's methods. Uh, secularism has even influenced uh, the evangelical churches with the Madison Avenue advertising approach. Uh, we've become preoccupied, as one preacher said, with nickels, numbers, and noses. Uh, the measure of a church's effectiveness is the number of outreach programs, good works, and things like that. We have to seem to measure things because that's how we were trained all our lives in business. We have to measure things all the time in quantity. God's methods, in contrast, are this. Listen up. Prayer, the power of the gospel to transform lives through the Holy Spirit, conviction of sin, in enabling repentance and faith. The world prizes intellect, money, prestige, and power. It always has. The philosophy of the church today is money, politics, and good works in many, many elements of our church. And so I want to make a, as the young people say, passionate appeal that we go back and do our homework and sit under God's word and that we, we pursue holiness. You know what will happen in our lives when we get serious about God's word and pursue holiness? I want to close with this. It's an illustration out of the life of Isaiah. 
And it's found in Isaiah 6, and you know it so well. But put it in the context of what holiness produces in a life. You want to know if you're really seeing holiness produced in your life? In the year, verse 1, of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Can you imagine that? Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and two, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's what we're talking about. And the found, that's the priority of heaven. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, here's the response. Not self-satisfied, comfortable pride in how far I've come and how different I am from my neighbor. But woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's a conviction of sin. It's a crying out for mercy and salvation. It's a humbling of ourselves under the holy, almighty, all-powerful, sovereign hand of God, but loving hand of God. For it says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand in which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold. That's a mouth now transformed. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity, that which was breaking his heart because of contrast to the holiness of God, you didn't take away. He didn't take it away. That iniquity has been taken away and your sin is forgiven and you arise from that with nothing less than a passionate grateful heart for the amazing grace of God and then you go out and you share it with other folks that need to be brought to their knees like that isn't that the mission of the church and you come here and celebrate it with genuine hearts of praise to God instead of hymn 344. Okay, I'm going to try to concentrate on it again and sing it. You see the difference? We've lost the punch of holiness and the impact it makes on personal lives in the watching world. And my prayer is that, uh, and I get around and do some preaching, and I see my prayer is that our PCA churches, because that's where my first love is, would catch it and live in the good of it. May God bless this message to your heart. Amen.